From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. May Day, May 1st, 2020, culminates a week of action in the midst of massive unemployment in the United States and often dangerous working conditions during the COVID-19 crisis. We go to the streets of D.C. to hear from workers and activists who say this day marks the launch of a new era for the labor movement. This is just part and parcel of a reimagining of what a society after a pandemic could look like. A world where people never get their utilities shut off. Where people are never evicted. A world where people have the money, food, and resources that they need to survive. And as the District of Columbia, like other states, looks to reopen the economy, the fate of thousands of workers and small businesses hangs in the balance. We speak to Andy Shalal, activist, artist, and owner of seven Busboys and Poets restaurants and event spaces here in the DMV. I think it's a really important opportunity for us not to come out of this the same as we entered, but to come out of this very different. And, and I hope that's the lesson that's being learned here. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. A series of unprecedented strikes, walkouts, and other labor actions are planned for today in the United States and in countries around the world to mark May Day or International Workers' Day. Employees at companies including Amazon, Whole Foods, Walmart, Target, and Instacart are among those planning to either call in sick or walk off the job during the lunch break to protest the refusal of their employees to provide health and safety protections and precautions as they rake in record profits as designated essential businesses. They are asking the public to not shop in the stores today and to not cross the picket line. Chris Smalls, the Amazon supervisor who was fired in March after he organized a walkout at a Staten Island Amazon warehouse, is spearheading many of today's actions and told The Real News that workers in the retail sector are uniting in new ways across company lines. We're all in the same situation. People in the states over here nationwide, I mean, we all coming together in solidarity to mobilize on May 1st. And collectively, all these companies target Whole Foods, uh, Instacart, Eba, Uber and Lyft drivers, FedEx drivers. They all decided to speak up on this topic, which is the pandemic and that the fact that these companies are not protecting us. And we decided to all join forces. In addition to or in solidarity with these strikes, social justice organizations are culminating more than a week of actions that started with Earth Day to demand action on issues ranging from the climate crisis to food and housing insecurity, impacting those suddenly stripped of their livelihood. More voices from those actions later in the show. Also unprecedented is the outsized attempt by the Trump administration to destroy the U.S. Postal Service, the People's Public Mail Service. Trump and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin blocked aid to the Postal Service in the March stimulus package and have refused to allow financial assistance to flow to it without onerous strings attached. 
During an April 24th bill signing ceremony in the Oval Office, Trump attacked the Postal Service, calling it a joke, and unrealistically suggested that the Postal Service should raise the price of a package, quote-unquote, approximately four times. In response to Trump's attacks, the American Postal Workers Union commissioned a YouGov nationwide opinion poll released on Thursday that shows the public overwhelmingly supports funding for the U.S. Postal Service in the next stimulus bill to prevent it from running out of cash. Postmaster General Megan Brennan has reported to Congress that due to a decline in revenue linked to the pandemic, the service will run out of money by September without financial support. The survey also indicates that elected leaders who allow the post office to go bankrupt may face significant backlash from voters. The poll of 1,269 adults conducted April 21st to 22nd shows two-thirds of adults believe Congress should fund the U.S. Postal Service in the next coronavirus stimulus bill, with only 15% of Americans opposing it. It also found half of Americans would be less likely to support members of Congress who vote against funding were the post office to run out of funds to operate. American Postal Workers Union President Mark Demonstein told Democracy Now! that assistance to the post office is really assistance to the American people. And what's happening is a lot of the mail, the marketing mail, for example, has dropped off almost 50 percent. And that's going to continue to happen. Packages are up some. But how long is that going to last when 25 million people and more to come are unemployed? So what's happening is it's there's a fork in the road. The Postal Service will actually run out of money, whether it's this summer, whether it's early fall. The revenue just isn't there strictly based on COVID. So what we've asked, and it's not just the we of the postal unions, uh, the, the Postal Board of Governors, which sets policy, which is a majority Republican board right now, has unanimously asked for robust relief, not a bailout. This is for the people of the country. This doesn't go into any shareholders, any CEOs. But to make up that lost revenue so the post office can weather this crisis and still at the same time serve the people of the country. Internationally, the Trump administration is stepping up the blame game, diverting attention to what it claims were China's shortcomings during the early days of the COVID-19 virus and away from his massive failures to address the virus here in the United States. Also on this International Workers' Day, more than 500 groups from around the globe reiterated their joint demand for a just recovery from the coronavirus pandemic and called on governments to pair economic relief policies that prioritize working people with ambitious climate action. Here in D.C., Mayor Muriel Bowser has raised more than a few eyebrows with her selections to head her reopened D.C. committee, including Michael Chertoff, controversial for his work after Hurricane Katrina with the Department of Homeland Security, and for his business working in mass surveillance systems. Also, she chose former Obama National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who has her own controversies, including the U.S.-backed attack on Libya that led to the assassination of leader Muammar Gaddafi and her dealings with other African countries as well. 
And finally, in culture and media, Common Dreams reports that the hashtag Fire Chris Hayes was trending on Twitter Thursday as the MSNBC cable news anchor came under attack from numerous Democrats and liberals for reporting Wednesday night on allegations from Joe Biden's former Senate staffer, Tara Reid, that the former senator, vice president, and presumptive Democratic Party presidential nominee sexually assaulted her in the Capitol building in 1993. Hayes' call for further media investigation was accompanied by a sober recounting of the history of Reed's allegations about various forms of sexual harassment, as well as the sexual assault she said she endured while working for the then-Senator Biden. Hayes cautioned his viewers against allowing bias and preconceptions to cloud their objectivity, Biden's campaign also announced Thursday afternoon that he would appear on today's Morning Joe program on MSNBC. And finally, I have some new streaming ideas for you while you're stuck in the house. New on DVD and streaming is The Photograph with Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield. The critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes is that The Photograph has gorgeous visuals and affecting love story and simmering chemistry between Ray and Stanfield. And also popular for DVD and streaming is the documentary Blockchain, which is all about cryptocurrency now and in the future, if you want to nerd out on that. Here's a bit of the trailer for Blockchain. I think in about five years, you're going to buy a cup of coffee, and if you try to use real currency, they'll say, what is this? <laughs> Bitcoin has come from virtually nowhere. What Bitcoin was trying to do was make currency that won't be completely run by the government. So people are panicking. It's ridiculous. It's what happened to gold? Maybe you can't put this idea away. The blockchain makes Bitcoin possible. It's the magic. And then people create these altcoins. 1,300 cryptocurrencies. Blockchain. Blockchain is just a bunch of cryptocurrencies that are a scam. Because The widespread proliferation of open source technologies like cryptocurrency and blockchain was exactly what hackers had envisioned from the beginning. Can you get your head around this, this figure of 99 years? The full weight of the federal government trying to throw somebody in jail for 100 years who protested. I am a international fugitive in the uh, words of the Department of Justice. We're in a precarious position. The internet is now a tool of central power, but blockchain says it's another way. And that was part of the trailer for blockchain, a new DVD and also movie streaming, which is all about cryptocurrency now and in the future. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. I heard the judge say five years on chain gang you gonna go i heard the church say five years of labor i heard my old man scream lord you know hold it right there while i hit it well i reckon that ought to get it been working and working but i still got so terribly far to go
hitting 98% unemployment. Unions like Unite Here are getting crippled. My own industry that I represent, construction workers, right up there. We're estimating about 50% unemployment. They're hourly workers. Don't have access to healthcare coverage. How is it that we live in the richest country in the world? And we can't protect our own workers. We can't give them healthcare coverage during a pandemic. It's ridiculous. And these are just workers who have a union. If you are incarcerated, if you don't have a union, if you're in the gig economy, you're just working to survive. We have to work. We're the frontline workers because forcing us to pay our rent is squeezing working class people. They have to go out and risk their lives, risk bringing the disease back to their families in order to survive. It's criminal. And our government is busy bailing out the rich, bailing out these corporations. We know when we actually look at the stimulus, when we look at these so-called recovery bills, the majority of them are still going to the rich and not to the workers who run the real economy, construction workers, laborers like those in prison. It's disgusting. We live in an immoral society and we need our government to put working people first, to put the people first, to free the prisoners. Uh, that way we can actually take care of each other. This government is immoral and, and we need to demand, we need to come back and do these actions again. We're here together in 40 different cities, raising hell, demanding that the government prioritize its own citizens. Thank you very much. We are here at the DC jail where so many people are stuck here, incarcerated, without soap, without water, without any of the bare necessities that people need, without distance. It's impossible for people to distance here. Right, do you talk a little bit about that and why we're out here today overall? Sisters and brothers, before I start, I wanna, I wanna bring up Mara Verhayden Hilliard as the executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. The National Park Service tried to shut down the assembly area over at Carter Barron today because of the intervention of PCJF. Uh, we want to be able to hear a few words from Mara. Mara Verhayden Hilliard. Sisters and brothers, we're out here today because there are people inside who are in there who are basically being sentenced to death because we do not have decarceration, because people are in there in unsanitary and inhumane conditions. And we are demanding that there be decarceration, that there be housing for people, that we have a system that can provide for the population. Right now, the government of the United States is shoveling trillions of dollars that the big businesses and the big banks are taking the Small Business Administration says that it's providing support and loans, but most of that money is going to the big banks and the big businesses that are connected to those banks. There's nothing being done to help the people in the United States who are suffering, and yet we have the resources to provide everything, everything that people need here in the United States. There could be housing. There could be jobs programs. 
There can be free health care. All of these things are completely doable. And the only reason they're not happening is because the very rich are grabbing everything they can. And this crisis has laid bare our circumstances. And for the prisoners across the country, the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, the 13th Amendment ended slavery, but not for prisoners. Prisoners across the country are being forced into making masks for their guards and not being given the masks themselves. It says everything about the priorities, about the treatment of the poorest of the poor in our country. We are out here demanding that the rents be canceled because they can be. It's not a pipe dream demand. It's a completely doable demand. The trillions of dollars that are being poured out for people for whom the rent is going to be due in a month, in two months, in three months, a moratorium is not enough. All we're doing is saying, we'll give you three months before you're homeless. And yet there is enough money to cancel the rents, to cancel mortgages for some homeowners and small landlords. There's enough money to put people to work. There is enough money to pay for health care. There is enough to do everything that would keep society alive and healthy and well. And we're demanding that that money go in the right places and that we have a reorientation as to how our society is run because it is doable and we demand it now. Our next speaker is Sean Blackman. He's an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Sean Blackman. How y'all doing? My name is Sean Blackman. I'm with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And I'm very glad to be out here with all of you today to show that even in the era of physical distancing, we can still have social solidarity. And we know that for the people of DC, many of them are living in slum conditions yes. because even though this city and this mayor is looked upon as progressive, and when I say the mayor, I'm talking about Muriel Bowser, of course. If you look at Bowser's response to the coronavirus in DC, it mirrors a lot of what we see from Donald Trump. Yes, it does. Because even before this pandemic, Muriel Bowser was cozy with developers like Jeff Griffiths and others who have been facilitators of displacement and gentrification in DC with affordable housing, truly affordable housing, drying up to almost nothing. Yep. And if people, if the rent is not canceled, then we can expect a wave of evictions, which only puts people at a new level of danger. So we see that when we talk about canceling the rent, this is just part and parcel of a reimagining of what a society after a pandemic could look like. A world where people never get their utilities shut off, where people are never evicted, a world where people have the money food and resources that they need to survive. It is now an undeniable fact that the resources exist. It's just a matter of those who control it. 
not be willing to give it to you. So that is the connection between the fight of incarcerated people and the fight of those of us struggling on this side of the wall. The chance to rent, to get a new system, reduce new society. And that's what we're here today to say, cancel the rent. Sisters and brothers, we came out today, not just in Washington, D.C., but in 40 cities, or more than 40 cities around the country. Let's hear some honking in solidarity with the prisoners who need to be released. They need to be set free. This is a death heard voices from the cancel the rents car caravan protest rally held in washington dc april 25th 2020 sponsored by the party for socialism and liberation in dc and in 40 other cities around the country last you heard brian becker and before him sean blackman mara verhaden hilliard and yasmin dara this is on the ground on pacifica radio stay with us Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación Ayo, hey, ayo, my heroes are young lords Adored and ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets, people were killing each other So they formed a coalition of brothers and sisters On a revolutionary mission Now listen, they won't 
dealing with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación or Muerte. Liberty or death to their last breath. Fighting for those that have less. So though we man stress, we still blessed. Still stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiracion Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa en su mente para la revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiracion Lo que me inspira es el poder This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Labor announced that 3.8 million more Americans had filed for unemployment during the week ending April 25th, raising the number of those counted as unemployed in the last six weeks to more than 30 million. Though the actual number of unemployed is definitely much higher, with many workers not covered by unemployment insurance, many unable to reach state offices about their claims, many undocumented workers, and of course, the millions of long-term unemployed not even counted in the statistics. While on today, May Day, International Workers' Day, we are focusing on workers, I want to turn now to a well-known employer in the DMV, Washington, D.C. area, Andy Shalal, creator and owner of seven busboys and poets restaurants and event spaces. Welcome to On the Ground, Andy. Thank you so much, Esther. Well, you've had to lay off 90% of your workers, about 450 people, while you pare down to uh, takeout and delivery on the other hand, you still have rent utilities on your locations and taxes that supports those jobs that are lost. So what's your take on how the United States is responding to the needs of workers on one hand and small businesses like yours on the other? Well, in a word, it's been very chaotic, but I guess, you know, we have not been through an epidemic before and not certainly in my lifetime and uh, not in anybody's lifetime right now. So I think it makes it a little bit complicated to figure out what is the normal and what would be the way uh, forward that would be a more positive way and a less chaotic way. We've seen other countries do it much better. And it makes you wonder, you know, when we think of ourselves as being the most powerful, the most richest and all of that, that we are unable to get our act together on this issue, I think raises so many unanswered questions. And I think it gives us a little bit of humility and a little bit of refocus to say, what can we do better? How can we do it better? So I've not been impressed with the with the response. But at the same time, I know that it's overwhelming. And uh, I know this is unprecedented. So you mentioned other countries and workers in other developed capitalist countries in Europe, for example, are getting most, if not all of their salary guaranteed by the government indefinitely as an encouragement to stay home and lessen the community spread of COVID-19 virus. And here in the U.S., on the other hand, there are these scandals, such as major corporations like Boeing or in your industry, big restaurant chains like Shake Shack or Ruth's Chris Steak receiving funds earmarked for small businesses. So obviously this is a difference in philosophy, may perhaps ideology in terms of a top-down approach to handling the economy or a bottom-up, giving people the funds they need to continue to support their rent, their mortgage, etc. So how are you seeing that? 
Well, I was happy to see that the majority of my laid-off staff has been able to receive unemployment, not only unemployment through the city, but also through the federal government. Mm -hmm. In some instances, actually even more than they normally make during a 40-hour work week. So I'm encouraged by the fact that there has been a response for the, for the most part, at least from the people that I've spoken with, people that we had to lay off ourselves. Food establishments run a very thin margin usually and extremely competitive environment. And you pay yesterday's bills with today's revenue. So you're always running a little bit behind and it makes it a little bit more difficult. I don't want to judge any other company and their need to get funding. I know that in many instances, it's not a grant. It's more of a loan. In some instances, it is a grant. But I do understand the need for cash uh, for a lot of these businesses to be able to continue to do what they do. Now, there are instances where you have, let's say, large developers that have been you know, benefiting greatly from the city and from the town they're in. And for them to take uh, a lot of tax breaks and tax cuts seems not very good for the long-term economy, for a city, and for the the uh, the treasury that that, that, that needs to be uh, there in, in order to fund a lot of uh, needed social services. So I see the pull and tug between the two. And I know that there's a lot of folks saying that we have to stay out for a much longer period of time and we have to continue to, uh, you know, be in quarantine or be in, in, a, in a social distancing environment, all that. I think at some point we need to figure out a, a way forward. I think human beings, just by the, their very nature, aren't going to be able to stay apart from one another for a very, very long time. I think this is a temporary situation we're in. And we have to figure out a way to make sure that we are taking care of the people that are out. That are out. We can't tell people to stay home if we're not going to take care of them. And mm. I think the dichotomy here that we're dealing with, you know, at, at some point you're telling people stay home. You must stay home. And especially the most vulnerable who tend to be people of color, oftentimes poor people and so on. We're telling them to stay home because we don't want them to get sick. And then there's not enough sometimes for many people. There's not enough services. There's not enough way to be able to... They live in food deserts, some of them. Some of them aren't able to get to where they need. Some of them have children. We're telling people to homeschool. Well, what if you have three kids and you have to go to work? What do you have three kids and you have to work at home? Uh, what do you have, you know, you have kids that, that and, and you only have one computer. Like, all of these things seem, you know, at some level, they seem like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, we get to hang out at home. We get an unemployment check and all that. But no, it's complicated. And, and I think that there are a lot of people that are going to get hurt by this, obviously. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of people that are going to benefit like hell from this. The billionaires in this country have made over $300 billion more during the last month, which mm -hmm. seems really pretty awful. Like, they can't lose, you know? It's like when things are great, they do immensely great. When things aren't great, they still do immensely great. So I think this has given us a moment of pause to see the cracks that we have in our economy the cracks that we have in our social systems, the cracks that we have in our healthcare, uh, the cracks that we have in our priorities. And I think it's a really important opportunity for us not to come out of this the same as we entered, but to come out of this very different. And, and I hope that's the lesson that's being learned here. Well, you know, it's May Day, International Workers Day. And so as an employer, what are some of the ways that you think that workers can be strengthened coming out of this? I think for workers, we have to understand like the benefits element of it, the uh, the wages. What is a, a sustainable wage that we can actually have people make in order for them to be able to survive on their own? 
what are the benefits that we have available? We have to look at the healthcare. Why do people have to lose their healthcare if they move from one job to another? These are ways I think that we can rethink how employers and employees interact with one another. I have to, I have to tell you, we are looking to change the structures in my business and how we do things because this is, again, this is a real opportunity and I don't want to miss it. I hope we don't have another pandemic like this, but you know, to be able to use this moment to say, let's restart, let's reboot a lot of things that we've been talking about, the way especially tipped workers are paid, the way that schedules are made, all of these things I think we need to reassess, maybe thinking in terms of more permanent type scheduling so that you not have people like, you know, on a whim being sent home, or you have you have situations where people may be dependent on tips only, and the tips are may not come in, and therefore they end up, you know, not making the kind of money they need to make in order to survive. So these are the questions that we're asking internally and trying to make changes as we speak. Earlier, you made a mention, I think you were kind of referring to Medicare for All and universal health care that would cover everyone, whether you had a job or not. Yeah. I do not want to be in the business of providing health care for my staff. My staff should not be dependent on me deciding whether or not they get health care. That is insane. That makes no sense whatsoever. I want government to take care of all these things. I want government to take care of sick leave. I want them to take care of family leave. I want them to take care of... I will pay my taxes to do that. I do not think employers should be the folks that make those decisions because it seems like a strange way to operate. I really think that the government has to play a significant role. I don't have much time, so I guess I, I do have two more points that I want to cover with you. So... Given what you were just mentioning about, you know, government should do more, you know, it, it reminds me to talk to you about two different developments in the city. So and I understand that you left a coalition of like reopen DC in 2021 or whatever, because it was so stacked with developers. And I wanted to know a little bit about that. And then also, I saw that Mayor Bowser has been getting some pushback for some of her appointments to this reopen DC committee, including Michael Chertoff, who was kind of infamous in his role during Katrina and Susan Rice, uh, infamous for her role as national security advisor under Obama uh, for her roles in, in Africa. So I guess I want to just get your, your feedback about that. And uh, are these two committees, are these the same that you that you stepped down from, and aren't we looking at basically right now in this moment a fight between the ongoing kind of neoliberal approach, very market approach, you know, by the government to this crisis, and people who want to fight for a new vision that they're fighting against because in their mind it's socialism, but it's really uh, in the tradition of what we've had in this country in the past and like the New Deal and and other types of uh, social progress programs? Well, to answer your first question, there are two separate committees. So one was an ad hoc committee that was formed by developers that was uh, called DC 2021. And it's basically looking at the way forward and making sure that businesses and others survive this pandemic. When I was called into it at first, I wasn't sure exactly what the purpose of the gathering was. 
And many of us were looking for opportunities to be able to go before the city council and find the way forward because the city council is going to have to play a role in that. When I realized that I was one of two restaurant business owners, a local, myself and Ali's, uh, Nizam Ali from Ben's Chili Bowl were the only two in there. I decided that when I looked at the makeup of the of the group, I decided that it's not a good fit for me. They were mostly developers, and although they were looking for opportunities to make it easier for people that are retailers, because uh, retailers have to rent from developers, unfortunately, that's how it works sometimes, they were looking for ways to keep their retailers in their spaces because they were seeing a bloodbath ahead of them. They were seeing the idea that many of many of these retailers go out of business. They were trying to make sure that the retailers get away not to go out of business and wanted to see if the city council would be interested in footing the bill for that purpose. And the bill was to forego or forgive property taxes, which are oftentimes passed on to the retailer and increases their rent by a substantial amount, maybe by 20 to 25% sometimes. So if the city council was going to forgive those taxes, that forgiveness would be passed on to the retailers and they would end up having uh, to pay lower rent. That is not a necessarily a workable way because I do believe that a lot of the developers have done extremely well, one would say way too well, on city expenses. And because the city has gone through this huge amount of growth in the past 15 years or so, I should say 12 years. And therefore, I want things that are actually going to be specifically for retailers, and I don't really have to be involved with what developers want. If they want to go ask something of the city council, they should do it on their own, and it should be very transparent, and people should know about it. I don't want to be a cover for a developer to say, oh, we're giving Busboys and Poets or Ben's Chili Bowl an advantage, uh, and that's why we're asking for the money, because I don't trust developers. I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. Uh, and for me, it wasn't it wasn't a good uh, wasn't a good fit for that purpose. The second committee was the Reopen DC committee, which the mayor put together, um, and I am part of the small subcommittee uh, for restaurants, bars, and other food establishments. So we're not involved. There, there are many. There are I think twelve or thirteen committees, uh, subcommittees under the big rubric of Reopen DC, and mine is uh, only the uh, the restaurant. It's made up of about twelve people including myself, Jose Andres, and Kathy Hollinger, who heads the, the local D.C. Uh, Restaurant Association. Uh, there's also people from Martha's Table. There are people from nonprofits. There are people from food banks and, and people like that that are involved in this. And the thing that I think is useful to say here is I heard this over and over again, that part of the charge that any of the committees have is bringing about some sort of equity into the formula. So whatever recommendation is made, the idea of equity has to play into that recommendation. So I was encouraged by that. We had our first meeting as a subcommittee. We're supposed to come up with a report in 10 days and, you know, to come up with best practices, how to make it work and so on. The equity part has been kind of set aside, which I, I'm going to push very hard on that to make sure that that becomes a part of the conversation because it's too easy to just think of the logistics of moving forward without addressing a better way to do things. And I just want to make sure that we actually have that as the key metric in any decision that's made to open the city again. So is labor represented anyway on the that you can see in the reopen DC committee? Not in the restaurants. 
Look, the players are the players. Uh, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. It's Michael Chertoff and Susan Rice are the uh, are the key folks. They are the co-chairs of the entire thing. And underneath them, there are chairs. And chairs are, okay, so you'll laugh at this, Anthony Williams, Adrian Fenty, Phil Mendelson, Jeff uh, DeWitt, Nicole Lurie, uh, the former assistant secretary, and and the mayor's senior advisor, Beverly Perry. So these are not progressives. These are not people that are going to, uh, you know, shake the tree in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's obvious, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't see, I don't see anything here that is specifically deals with labor. Okay. Uh, under Beverly Perry's subcommittee, there is something called equity and vulnerable populations, uh, a subcommittee that deals with that. It doesn't sound that encouraging, I have to admit. But the charge is, you know, they, it's, it's very lofty. It's think big, uh, look forward, think about equity as we move to make decisions. You know, those types of things is throughout the, the document that we were given that says this is the, uh, the charge that we have. But all these things, you know, I think a lot of times it depends. It depends how people are going to take it, how people are going to use it. There's a lot of lip service that's given to some of these issues and very little uh, in the way of action. So I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we come out of this exactly as we went in, or maybe even worse. But for my part, I plan to push really, really hard on the idea of equity and try to figure out a better way to do things. Because I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, of things that we've all been talking about, and I want to make sure that that gets pushed. Well, finally, during this whole pandemic, you know, the military has not not been paid okay the that whole sector of the economy has still maintained its you know its funding its salaries everything from our tax dollars but the part of the economy that i've started to think of as the peace economy the economy that is about people gathering at places like busboys sometimes enjoying art enjoying culture enjoying spaces where we can have some opportunity to exchange ideas and, and perhaps, you know, confront, you know, U.S. imperialism, hegemony around the world and war. Those are the places that are hard hit right now. And so today you have workers and activists out trying to reclaim the space for free speech to be able to protest, to be able to, in a safe way, not, not like some of these other uh, kind of right-wing demonstrations where they're just out with no masks, no nothing. But I just wanted to like leave on that note with any thoughts you had about that, about, and, and the idea of what they're considering as essential workers, you know, versus, you know, these other spaces that are, that I think are very essential to us. And that's a place to gather and as human beings and to confront what is, was kind of a regimented order now. It's very odd that this whole issue has become kind of a, a right-wing, left-wing, Republican-Democrat issue, you know, where the Republicans and, and the right-wingers especially are saying, ah, oh, you know, just go out and have a good time, and who cares, and they're trying to lock us up, and they're trying to be in the, and the Dems, and the less, uh, the more progressives are saying, no, 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 we got to, you know, stay home and put masks on and all this. Uh, it's strange that that has become uh, that kind of conversation, where it should be, you know, we should actually use science, we should use common sense, we should use so many other things. And there's been so many mixed messages 
I am confused as hell, honestly. Uh, and I imagine many of the people out there are also. You know, one moment we're told that we have to wear a mask, uh, you know, to be out and out about. Another moment we're told that, you know, the vice president go into a hospital with sick people and doctors all around him and not have a mask on. What, what is he like, superhuman? Is he like, is he ex an exception? Are we all being led into something that we shouldn't be? Does he have a secret that we don't know about? I am frankly, at a loss in how to move forward. And the conversation what we're having about, about the idea of reopening D.C. is, you know, we had all the statistics, all the numbers, all the things that, are, that they gave us from the health department, but there's no real guidance in what that means, really, to reopen. So, so we're talking we have to go for 14 days with, a, with the curve being flat. But then what happens? Like, we don't know. There's no real specifics about what's going to happen, especially for gathering places, because as, as you said, these are these are what gives us uh, a sense of hope. Uh, it sort of brings soul to the city. It brings a kind of sense of connection that people absolutely need in these very difficult times. And we're being, being told to be kind of against our human nature, and that is to isolate, get away from each other. I am always... Whenever a situation like this happens, I'm always questioning the wisdom behind those types of efforts and what the efforts are going to look like once we open. So we're talking about, you know, having people wait outside, everybody's in a mask, you know, people stand, you know, away from each other, not sit. Like, what is that going to do to an experience where you want to go and listen to poetry or meet others to talk about activism or go do a demonstration or whatever? Those are things that are going to be very, very different. And I'm, I want us to not be led by fear alone because i mean we have reasons to be afraid obviously but i also think that that fear can de debilitate us and and turn us against one another and isolate us from each other which is absolutely the opposite of what we want to do especially in these very difficult times when there's so much going on and the people that will not be isolated are the people at the top the people that are able to make these decisions that are going to impact everybody and they're going to make sure that you know, fear is, of course, a, a known, you know, surefire thing for any politician to have in their pocket. And that fear is going to be used. I just don't want us to be overreacting uh, oftentimes and succumbing to the fear uh, w without questioning, without being there and making sure that we don't end up being taken to the cleaner, so to speak, uh, uh, underneath us while uh, we are locked into this sense of, of fear and isolation that I think benefits certain uh, groups of, of, uh, of politicians and people. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to have to leave it there. I've been speaking to Andy Shalal, creator and owner of Busboys and Poets Restaurants and Event Spaces here in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Thank you for joining me today, Andy. Thank you so much, Esther. Appreciate it. Check it out, talk
on the Monday before May Day, Shutdown DC held a moving protest with cars and bicycles to celebrate the frontline workers and to, quote, confront the politicians and corporate executives that are putting our communities at risk, end quote. I was at one of the caravan launch sites where I spoke to workers and activists. The second interview with April Goggins is a bit muffled because she was speaking through a mask, but you should be able to hear what April has to say. My name is Deborah Washington. Um, I'm a nurse here at in DC. I work at United Medical Center, and I was really moved by the fact that um, they were doing a caravan just driving by my hospital just to thank all the nurses and the healthcare workers and all the everyone that's still there during this time. Just thanking them for what they're doing during this time. So. Do nurses there have the protective equipment they need? At this time, we do. Um, we have the equipment. Sometimes we have to, say, sign it out every day. We're told that we can wear things for more than a day. But if we say that it's soiled or if it's been damaged or something, we are able to get it replaced, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and so, so a nurse is uh, demonstrated outside the... The, uh, the White House last week and they read the names of 48 nurses who had died already because of the COVID crisis. So have uh, people, nurses been impacted like that at your hospital? Yes, we do have some nurses um, that have tested positive. I'm not aware of any nurse that has passed um, because of the virus, but we do have nurses that have um, been tested and we have had Co-workers are people that work in the hospital that have that passed because oh. of the virus. Yes. Yeah. So, what do you think needs to be done right okay. now in terms of meeting the needs for people in the community? I I really don't know. Um, I think we're doing as best we can as far as the um, social distancing um, because this is so unknown. Um, it's so new to everyone. We're trying to follow the guidelines that people have set out for um, us, hand washing, you know, you can't say that too much, hand washing, hand washing, social distancing, the wearing of the PPE, the mask, the PPEs for the nurses, just having people give us a chance to help them. How about the testing? I mean, we we still don't have enough tests. Like, I even heard that not all, even all healthcare workers have been able to get a test. I have not been tested, and that's true. for the most part, our facilities, they feel that unless you're symptomatic, you don't need to be tested. And even when you have been, um, even when you have been um, exposed, they, they kind of say what your risk is, whether it's a low risk, uh, moderate, and what they think you should do. If you're at low risk, they feel like you should just self-monitor. You know, and if you decide, uh, if you feel like you're symptomatic, then you can request to be tested. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, are you going to take part in the caravan today? I am. Okay. I am. All right. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. We do have one nurse that did pass. Um, that's one of our members. So we oh. Do have one oh, I'm sorry. Just say your name and where you're here. You're here from the yeah. DC Nurses Association. I am the staff attorney. 
mm-hmm. uh, representing the nurses. And we do have, um, we've have like um, up to 50 nurses that have been tested positive and, um, and one nurse has passed. Oh, okay. For the DC, DC Nurses Association? Yes, we have a nurse at Howard University that passed. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get your name though. Walla. Oh, Miss Waller from the Walla, W A L A. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. It's April Blackens. We're here to uh, raise awareness to, especially uh, essential workers. Many in DC are black. Um, the fact that we always that we always bear the brunt of uh, any kind of natural disaster or any kind of health, you know, health crisis, um, and that it's not new. That it has historical roots. And uh, that is intentional. These are systems that are designed to keep these disparities going. Um, and so, but none of the the ways that people are told to protect themselves, essential workers have no way to do that. Um, and it's on top of that, a lot of us have folks that are either institutionalized, like at Saint Elizabeth, or incarcerated, like in DC jail. And because we've already made those people disposable, they also um, having the same predispositions around health, um, economic access, um, but they are like double uh, disposable. So they are the last people uh, that anybody thinks of if they think of them at all. So today is to bring awareness to that, to give people an opportunity to actually do something instead of being overwhelmed at home. Uh, and to raise awareness to the rest of the folks that are doing this and call out the uh, the people and the institutions that are responsible. And I think that when people do exposés and interviews, a lot of times they do, they, they interview the doctors and they, they find a, a certain kind of person who will evoke a certain kind of emotion. Um, whereas here and in other cities, the majority of the folks that are involved are black folks, black and real folks. What about um, people who might say if you're trying to support those frontline workers, you shouldn't be outside exposing yourself? And if they wanted to support uh, frontline workers, they would be doing the same thing to make sure that they had the PPE that they were supposed to have, that they that there was enough testing for them to know that they could actually keep people safe. So while they have to do our job, their job to keep us alive, we can be out here supporting for the time that they can at a table of decision makers. It's not keeping us safe. It's clearly not moving the money to the people who need it, and it's not protecting anybody. I think that it does a disservice to only showcase our mayor, Muriel Bowser, talking about how efficient things are when thousands of thousands of people in D.C. Uh, are going without um, in ways that don't make any sense for the amount of money that they've allocated to help these things. The fact that the police are still arresting, despite what they say, with no PPE. The fact that while kids are getting one meal a day, there's two that they're not and none on the weekend. And so we literally have kids coming to our house. Um, and not all the kids who have to finish school at D.C. at home have computers yet. And the district doesn't have a plan for being able to actually uh, fulfill that. So, yeah, uh, I need people to look deeper, to, to be inquisitive, 
and stop placating these mayors that we're making heroes for doing things that are their job. This is what they signed up for. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke. And, of course, you can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And you can support us on patreon.com forward slash On The Ground Show. I should say happy anniversary to On The Ground. May 1st, 2020 is our sixth anniversary And that might give you just a little bit more reason to go to Patreon and support us on our anniversary. The music we played this hour included Work Song by Nina Simone, Inspiracion by Conrado Malouk, Boom by The Roots, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.